Sup, everyone. I managed to squeeze in another interview for the pod this week. This one has been in the works for some time following my conversation with Sean Kelly from the California Institute of Integral Studies back in September. If you haven't listened to that conversation yet, you might want to go back to the references and links for a quick summary glance of that interview or listen to the conversation first. That said, this episode is incredibly special for me since my dad and William White attended Goddard College where Francis has been a faculty member since the early 2000s. So though I have never attended Goddard College, I nevertheless feel like Goddard's motto and educational philosophy permeates my whole being. Like usual, I hope you all enjoy the conversation and make sure to check out the links and references. And if time permits, check out my new Substack page called Integral Humanitas, which is a sort of behind the scene commentary, some of my thoughts for starting my podcast, along with a few other subjects close and dear to my heart. Cheers, and I hope you're all doing well. Bonjour, Francis. <laughs> Bonjour, Eric. I'm, uh, I almost feel that maybe we should do this in French in, uh, at one point or another as well. <laughs> well, let's see about that. <laughs> um, I'm super excited to talk to you, obviously. Um, you know, after talking to Sean and Sean pointing me in your direction and then, uh, you know, having a, a quick conversation. Well, it wasn't really a quick conversation. We actually had a, quite a long conversation. Uh, and uh, you pointing me in a direction of all kinds of resources and ideas. I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm super grateful and happy that we connected. Um, and I'm also a bit disappointed, actually, that since you've been in my backyard for so long, <laughs> that we haven't connected sooner. Uh, so hopefully we're making up for lost time along that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for people that are listening in, I mean, people might, uh, I, I encourage people to go back and listen to my conversation with Sean Kelly. Sean Kelly essentially uh, pointed me in uh, Francis's direction uh, since he's up in Montreal and he's been involved uh, and on, with, on multiple fronts in the field of religious studies and consciousness studies for uh, a number of years. Um, and in been involved with Goddard as well, Goddard College. So I'm excited to go and talk to you about all of that, obviously, uh, Francis. So I guess maybe we could start off. I mean, uh, you know, maybe you could talk a bit about how, uh, you got started in the field of religious studies and that eventually led up to you connecting with Sean. Well, I think it really grew out of an interest that, uh, you know, stems all the way back into my early life, frankly, into my childhood. I was raised within the Roman Catholic tradition, uh, pre-Vatican II, and uh, I did not have, as actually many people have had, a negative experience being raised within that tradition. It was more or less living within a world, a rather complete world, full of rituals, symbols, tradition, one thing or another. It had its downsides looking back many years later in terms of limitations and uh, uh, more or less being consigned to a particular community of people and what have you. But on the other hand, there are upsides to that. In the course of time, uh, I underwent the sort of changes that many people do uh, 
And in my particular experience, I came through the 60s and into the 70s. And of course, this is the period of the whole countercultural upheaval, some people call it a revolution, in which uh, the world sort of expanded and it expanded as a result of an interest in uh, different states of consciousness, some of which had to do with artificially stimulated states of consciousness, uh, which I have to say I did not myself really get all that involved in. But I became interested in some of the material that was surfacing related to Eastern religious traditions of one sort or another. <clears throat> the work of Alan Watts and uh, the movements that came out of India with a number of different gurus of one sort or another and an interest in trying to uh, get to the sources of some of these traditions. And so I actually had a good friend of mine, uh, Jean Nantel and I, who uh, shared this interest. And we used to go down to New York and go to Orientalia, which was a bookstore there, and another one called Samuel Weiser's, which sort of both of which ceased to exist, or at least Weiser's, I think, resurfaced in... Massachusetts or somewhere down in Maine, but uh, reading that material and uh, interacting with people who also engaged in a number of these traditions got me very interested in uh, religious studies as a more formal way of approaching this. I think I had a kind of penchant or inclination toward the kind of academic orientation and understanding, even though that was not formalized or developed. And then I had the opportunity uh, really to uh, explore a number of these traditions in a real-time way, and uh, I went to India. And I spent time in an ashram in India, wandering around, seeing all kinds of uh, fascinating sites, visiting centers, I traveled from India across through Central Asia, was exposed to Islam, Islamic sites, Sufi shrines of one sort or another. And I ended up in Israel after a very long protracted trip. And uh, I stayed there for a number of months and again had an opportunity to visit sites and to connect with people and uh, I think that had a strong impact because it was a very concrete kind of physical experience to see places like uh, Benares and uh, Jerusalem. And uh, I went to Europe as well. And when I got back, I decided that uh, I should find a way of pursuing this more formally. And uh, I actually enrolled in uh, a SEJAP in a very interesting program there called the New School Program under yes, a, yeah. an odd fellow whose name was Gary Maletzer. And I had <laughs> a great time and more or less was able to do what I wanted. And in a short period of time, I graduated and I had to make a decision. And I had three options. One was to go into psychology because I was interested in psychology, but a particular uh, a form of psychology, which frankly, in looking at psych departments, I did not really see reflected there. And by that, I mean, I was interested in 
Jung and kind of the depth psychological traditions and what was emerging to become later on transpersonal psychology. And then I was interested in anthropology because uh, I had a professor who had done field work, came from actually Columbia, Margaret Mead and that whole group. And he had done field work in Africa and introduced me and other students to these different cultures, which were also fascinating. I went into the Department of Religious Studies at McGill and had a conversation with some people there and they offered me money and an opportunity to go into religious studies, and I decided to take that route. And I did an undergraduate degree in religious studies in what we might generally call comparative religion or history of religions. And I was exposed to uh, Islam in a more formal way as well. Took a magnificent course with Charles Adams, who was the director of the Islamic Institute. At that point, McGill had one of the few institutes there. And I uh, was one of the few Westerners in a class of Muslims who had come to the <laughs> yeah. Islamic Institute. And sitting beside me was a... Well, and, and for people that don't know about that institute, I mean, maybe we should just say that Wilfred Cant Cantwell-Smith founded that institute prior to... Right. Uh, I mean, you formally going there. But so he was already gone at that point, or he was still there uh, during... No, uh, Cantwell-Smith had gone off to Harvard to become the director for the Center of the Study of Religion. And then he went to Dalhousie afterwards and set up a program in religious studies there too. Yeah. From, yeah. Excellent. Uh, it was Charles Adams was the director at uh, the time that I was there and gave this now legendary course in Islam. And I was going to say the person beside me was the hereditary successor of a Sufi brotherhood who knew the Quran by heart in Arabic. So I was... <laughs> Distinctly intimidated. <laughs> but in very good company, though. <laughs> in very good company and way out of my depth. <laughs> but uh, it was a memorable experience, and uh, I enjoyed that, too. But I took an interest, I think, in two areas in particular initially, and that was um, uh, Christianity and uh, Hinduism. And I spent a lot of time studying Hinduism with a number of people there. And then I did a master's and shifted out of so-called comparative religion and focused on psychology of religion. And I actually wrote my master's thesis on Carl Jung. And I couldn't go any further because they didn't have the resources. And I ended up going to University of Ottawa where there was an individual who had come out of Yale who kind of represented the psych of religion uh, sort of area, Naomi Goldenberg, and uh, I applied and was accepted to do my doctorate there, and that's where I met Sean Kelly, because Sean uh, did his doctorate there at roughly the same time as I did, and we, of course, became friends and had common interests in Jung and so on and so forth. He wrote his dissertation on Jung and Hegel, and I wrote my dissertation on the influence of spiritualism on Jung, and so we shared a lot of things in common and subsequently went off in our different directions, he to California, and eventually I ended up at Cotter College in Vermont. So that's kind of the rough itinerary, as it were. <laughs> you know? 
And I love that story. I mean, because I, well, I mean, well, I mean, both institutions, <laughs> the California Institute of Integral Studies and Goddard, uh, you know, I've known people that have been involved with those two universities uh, and that have had just a tremendous impact on me. Uh, like I shared with you, obviously, my, my dad went to Goddard and another person that really influenced me from Goddard, uh, from Goddard is uh, William White who went there and did his work in terms of uh, the field of uh, addiction studies and recovery specifically. Um, and then obviously somebody that was involved from another person that was heavily involved in the area of Montreal that was, I guess, corresponded and did kind of, uh, was involved, I guess, somewhat on like on your level with the California Institute of Integral Studies was Albert Lowe, who, uh, uh, I mean, had obviously had a tremendous impact on me as well. And so, you know, and he was the reason why I eventually went back to university and ended up in the religious studies department up at, uh, at Concordia. Uh, but like, you know, like through the conversation that I had with Sean, I mean, obviously I discovered Sean's work in the late 1990s and got introduced to Ken Wilbur. Uh, so that's been a bit of a common thread through all of the conversations I've been having on the podcast. So to, to connect with you now and get this, this other sort of uh, version of this history has just been so tremendous for me. And so uh, uh, I've just been so excited. I mean, particularly the work of Howard uh, Coward that you referred me to. I've been reading that like I haven't I've been real, reeling since I've kind of uh, started reading his work um, because of, you know, when I, I expressed to you essentially is that I'm very interested in, in the history of religious studies and some of the differences, I guess, in terms of in Canada and in, in the United States. And uh, what I'm so happy about that I connected with you and Sean is that you guys kind of, <laughs> uh, you know, you guys lived on both sides of the borders of this story. Uh and that's really what I'm, you know, I want to go and explore with you a bit more actually now as well is that, I mean, uh, you know, from McGill and then to Ottawa and then to, to, to Goddard, I mean, well, well cause Goddard uh, has a, a specific motto uh, and philosophy of education that I'd like to hear you talk a bit about more, you know, on, you know, on the podcast and for other people to go in here, because it's something that's had a tremendous impact on me as well, essentially is this, the motto of uh, knowing, being, and doing, and how much that's come to influence you in terms of your view of what religious studies could be, and uh, not only what it could be, but also, you know, to the discipline now of consciousness studies. So I was wondering maybe if you could talk a bit about that in terms of how you got involved in all of that. I was hired at uh, Goddard College in the late 90s to develop the uh, consciousness studies concentration, which um, it was a graduate uh, concentration and a degree track in what eventually became the Graduate Institute at Goddard. And uh, they were looking for somebody that had that mixed background that didn't sit easily in faculty or departments of religion or religious studies in Canada, the experience that both Sean Kelly and I had, which is, I think, one of the reasons why we don't see in Canada, for the most part, anything along the lines of what we see at CIIS or even the consciousness studies concentration at Goddard or other institutions. 
there was not the same level of receptivity and interest. There was actually a suspicion around anything like that. It was too exotic, far out, it sat outside of academe, and so on. Uh, Goddard's orientation is really influenced by a different pedagogical perspective that's rooted in John Dewey's conception of what education consists of and became embodied in Goddard in particular through really its inspired uh, director, whose name was Tim Pitkin. And uh, what he wanted to do was to take Dewey's ideas and to develop an institution of progressive education that was very inclusive and whose orientation was really to find within the students themselves the motivation that would fuel their work, energize them, and so on, and to develop what we call a kind of an integrated model of education. And that consists of just the knowing being doing. So the acquisition of knowledge, which is a kind of a formal process in which you explore different subject matter, et cetera, without the uh, defined distinct disciplinary boundaries that are often found in other programs and other institutions. And then the, uh, the being part is really to ask the question of the extent to which the individual is connected to their work, related to their work, with a certain affirmation and validation of that and the need to really bring this into relief, which is again, different from what we see at other institutions where one wants to claim some kind of level of objectivity. And that means that you want to exclude the subjective as much as possible. <clears throat> the I shouldn't be in your writing. It should be the divine we or us or something along those lines. Like Goddard, the perspective is the opposite of that. You should find yourself at the center of your work. Whoever connects to your work should see that reflected there. And lastly, the doing part, which is uh, to take this acquisition of knowledge, your own presence in your work, the growth that occurs as a result of that, and to seek what relevance it might have for the larger world, be that a particular community, that you might be connected with, or even the larger, more idealistic realm of the world itself. <clears throat> and that you should seek validation out there too. So it's not just a personal subjective process. It really is a process that uh, is intended to serve the world too. Dewey had this conception, sounds a little old fashioned now, but uh, it still, I think, could be, um, uh, seen to address this. And Dewey said that education, the purpose of education, the end of education is to develop the opportunity to create citizens to take their place in a democratic society. So mm -hmm. this is his sort of idea or vision of that. And in a way that kind of is present in this model which crosses all the programs at Goddard, of which there are a number. There's interdisciplinary arts, there's a writing program, a psych program, a liberal arts program, as it were. But they all share this pedagogical orientation that's usually designated as progressive education, et cetera. Yeah. 
And so when I when I landed there, this was really something new that I had not directly experienced, and it was an adjustment to uh, uh, move from dispensing and dispersing knowledge to students who would then regurgitate back to you when you would assess it and exams or you know final products or something along those lines you actually work with students and we call ourselves at goddard advisors rather than professors etc cetera, etc cetera. we are there to share the journey students take in the acquisition of knowledge connecting themselves to it and bringing it into the world and offer them feedback direct them to sources help them think through what it is that they're doing and to try and identify the uniqueness of their input in this whole process so that the end result is not just to find a replication of yourself there as an advisor, but really to bring out the best in the student's work. And uh, so that was a different orientation and required a great deal of patience, discernment, and um, a more expansive kind of perspective on what constitutes learning and personal development so on yeah well i mean and it's not that i mean it was it was in the air as well i guess in montreal because like you said i mean you went to the new school up in dawson so this idea of experiential learning was i mean is very much present i mean i'm a graduate of concordia in the well now the applied human science but at the time was the applied social science and that they were weaving in a lot of these ideas and stuff like that and in fact i mean some of the uh, you know, the people that were involved with the YMCA where I grew up and were also involved up at Concordia and stuff like that. I mean, that's, you know, actually how my dad, you know, I got involved eventually and landed up at Goddard himself. Uh, he had two options. Essentially, he could go to Springfield College, which is basically the Y school, I guess, in the U.S. <laughs> uh, but Goddard was another one that was bouncing around that eventually he latched on to and, uh, uh, he ended up going there. Uh, but he felt uh, kind of like you as well, like a, sort of a bit of a fish out of water <laughs> being from Montreal uh, uh, and being a bit shell-shocked, I mean, because of everything that was going on in the U.S. during that time as well and in the, you know, the late 60s, early 70s into the 80s and stuff like that. Um, but I guess because I mean, and this is I guess is interesting to me, too, is that I mean, Goddard now, I mean, Goddard is a very long standing university and institution compared to even something like C, uh, CIIS or the California Institute of Integral Studies. And you guys are still standing. And yet there's been pop ups of, you know, institutes and alternative colleges and, uh, you know, other experiments like this across the United States that haven't really sort of uh, lasted the test of time. And I'm wondering now, you know, that uh, you've had this experience with that type of program. Uh, if you think maybe that's why Canadians were reluctant to go as far maybe or to push the envelope in terms of progressive education, like some of these institutions in the US uh, that hasn't gone out and replicated in Canada. I'm kind of curious to hear, you know, your thoughts on why or maybe you know, that's something that might happen eventually here as well, or just, you know, just to hear a couple of your thoughts on that. Yeah, and I think you're right that there are, you know, there are similar experiments in education that we could identify in this country. There's a place out in BC and a couple of other places. Um, <clears throat> but I think in the United States, this sort of, uh, you know, desire to re- 
generate different perspectives. Risk around this stuff. I think it's also characteristic of the U.S. too. And um, I'd, I'd say that uh, that's one of the cultural differences. And at the same time, I also think what you put your finger on, and I've ex I experienced that in Goddard in the over 20 years I was there, and the, uh, the precariousness and the fragility of institutions that are only of a certain size with a certain sort of financial endowment. Uh, Hampshire College is another one that nearly closed that uh, struggled to stay on its feet, which was very similar to Goddard. Uh, there are a number of other places that have simply shut down. And Goddard, you know, even now uh, leads a precarious existence that is very much dependent on students getting various forms of grants to be able to pay their tuition. And Goddard is largely um, running on the uh, tuition that students pay. I think, you know, there was something like 90 something percent, as I recall, of students who, you know, lived on these various forms of grants that are available in the United States, and many of them having jobs. And it's also the case in the United States, public support for education, as we know, is really prescribed and very limited. And uh, Goddard is near the bottom in terms of the costs of uh, going to that institution but it still leads a precarious existence. And that can be uninviting to students, even idealistic students, because they're not sure of what the outcome is going to be and whether the degrees are going to have, you know, any kind of integrity to them and so on and so forth. And I, we have actually seen that more, I'd say in the last decade in the US. And places have merged and, you know, I could go on for a long time about this because I sat I was the chair of the faculty council at Goddard twice. I sat on the president's council. I was on the board of trustees. I, I wore so many hats down there that really made me aware of the struggles of an institution like Goddard to just support and sustain itself. It's, um, it's fragile. It's, um, and it very much is dependent on the people that are involved to support and sustain mm. itself. It doesn't have the kind of base that can weather stormy times, such as the times we're going through and the political polarization and all the rest of the stuff, which has had an impact on higher education in the US. No, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, because that's something that obviously I'm witnessing. And I mean, it came up as well a bit in the conversation that I had with Sean, where Sean mentioned that, you know, that CIS is, is still standing. But I mean, as an institution, it's young, but compared to Goddard, I mean, Goddard's been around for over 100 years, if I understand correctly. I so think in a, the 1930s, it was sort of, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But um, I, and I guess in terms of since you guys both studied in religious studies and you're both interested in the uh, psychology of religion, I was wondering what was in maybe in the air that made you guys latch on to Jung uh, uh, at that particular moment in time. And, you know, and it's really, I mean, it's, it's inspired most of your work. And I mean, it's still very much, you know, the work that you've even think about, you know, if I look at some of your publications online and obviously your book, I mean, you've spent your whole life studying Jung and religious studies. I was, I was wondering what, 
what drew you or what was it about Young that, uh, you know, made you kind of dive in those so deep? I, I think it was the examination of the psychological dimension that Jung brought into a relationship with the broad field of religion, uh, what we would call religious studies, but that there is a spiritual kind of dimension that Jung affirms in his psychological model and offers at the same time a means by which to make intelligible and to grant a level of meaning to what constitutes the fundamental sort of principles of religion, religious traditions, including the Western religious tradition. And that was also born, I think, out of Jung's own personal experience, uh, being the son of a Swiss pastor and having a number of uncles who were as well, and experienced the meaninglessness, the growing meaninglessness of that tradition in his own life that he then drew away from and went into science, was terribly dissatisfied with that, and found a way back into trying to reconcile or bring the two together. That is to say, his own medical field and psychiatry, and then the whole area of spirituality, which in Jung's case also exists outside of formal religious traditions, especially his later work in alchemy and so on and so forth. And that was, I think, tremendously exciting for a whole number of us, whole number of us, actually, there were a few of us who, who went into this. And I think one of the difficulties for anyone who is interested in exploring, uh, you know, Jung in that perspective is the range of Jung's learning and what he brings to bear on all of this stuff. And uh, that takes a great deal of work to sort of uh, get a kind of sufficient enough grasp to be able to um, put together any kind of study or advanced knowledge in the area and make a contribution and that kind of stuff. And so you're drawn further and further in as you try to get a greater and greater understanding till you're, you know, completely immersed in it and just to the degree to which other things become peripheral to it in a way. At the same time, it offers you a window on any number of traditions, including Eastern traditions, too, that Jung wrote to some degree on Zen Buddhism, introduction to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, I Ching and a whole series of other things. Which he popularized in a certain way. I mean, along with Alan Watts, I mean, he drew yeah. a lot of people to the that, those particular works. Yeah, and uh, interacted and connected with people who were working on this material that he then brought to the Jung Institute in Zurich, Switzerland, and the other institutes, uh, you know, across especially the Western world, did the same too. So they became centers in which the, the kind of uh, interest that had surfaced had a forum to be presented, discussed, understood, and potentially integrated into, you know, a psychological model in Western culture. <clears throat> I think no. that was the that was the attraction for I think I'm. You know, and I'm speaking largely for myself here, but I think, you know, for Sean, it was something similar to. And then it it can be a jumping off point for other things, such as going into 
areas of transpersonal psychology. Some people went off into Wilbur. Others, Stanislav Grof, for example, would be, I think, current sort of individual who has taken a lot of Jung's ideas and extended through his studies of psychoactives and so on. Gotcha. And, um, well, I mean, because, well, I mean, because Young is still very much alive. I mean, I mean, Jordan Peterson is one very kind of popular and kind of uh, person that's out there. There's talked quite a bit about Young recently. And I mean, recently as well, I mean, I've had the opportunity to go out and meet Sean McGrath from, uh, from McGill and from Memorial through, and I got introduced to his work through a friend, but he also did a recent um, podcast series on Christianity and Young which was fascinating in terms of an overall sort of theme and subject. And they explored, I mean, not only young, but they also explore, uh, you know, Schelling and German idealism uh, and the work of uh, Slavoj Zizek as well, who's quite popular for, with a number of people. So, I mean, he's still very much in the air. And I mean, this is the reason why I was pretty excited to go and talk to you as well. And to Sean is because, I mean, you guys have been surfing this wave <laughs> for so long, just as much like kind of like Harold Coward, uh, uh, Coward, you know, in terms of the book that you recommended to me in terms of his uh, 50 years of religious studies in Canada. Um, and Obviously, I'm still reeling, having read that and thinking about my own personal studies and now coming off this conversation with Sean McGrath and stuff like that. Um, so I was, I was like, well, I, I would love to hear and it'd be fun, I think, maybe even for the audience to listen a bit uh, to, you know, how you kind of got introduced to, to Harold Coward and that how that eventually led to the publication of your book as well. Uh, I'd be, I, you know, I'd love to hear that story again, if you share it again there as well with the audience. Yeah, I actually didn't know who he was when I was I was doing my doctorate at the University of Ottawa, and there was a conference at Laval University, and I decided to submit a proposal for a piece of work I was interested in, and that was the uh, interaction, the correspondence, the exchange between uh, Carl Jung and a Dominican priest whose name was Victor White and the correspondence has subsequently been published in those days it was not except for what was found within the two volumes of Jung's uh, correspondence where where there were large footnotes long footnotes that quoted some of White's works and White had written a number of essays and so on and so forth so there was enough material to put together a presentation. So I gave that presentation and Coward was in the audience and he came up to me afterwards and he said, oh, I thought this was really good. You should really submit it for publication and so on. <clears throat> I subsequently did and it was published by the Journal of Analytical Psychology, which was the premier Jungian journal in uh, the UK. And he asked me what else I was doing. I said I was doing my doctorate on certain influences on Jung. And uh, he asked me about it, and I told him more or less what I was doing. And we had a conversation, and he handed me his card. And on the back of it, he wrote somebody's name, and this was the editor of SUNY Press. He said, when you finish it, send it to him, and uh, mentioned that... Uh, I had encouraged you to do so. Okay. Uh, and that was kind of the end of our conversation. 
and uh, Elizabeth LaSalle, who was the uh, chair of the department uh, at the University of Ottawa at one point, came up to me and said, uh, Coward came up to me and said this and that about your work. And, you know, and uh, <laughs> she was all kind of excited about that. And uh, frankly, I didn't even know who he was. So he was you know, this important person who was well known and, you know, on and on and on. And uh, long and short of it is when I finished uh, writing up my uh, PhD, I sent it off. And it was some months and I just assumed that it would, you know, it ended up on somebody's desk and then maybe in the garbage can, who knows. <laughs> the next thing I get this um, registered package and it's a contract with SUNY Press to publish the book, which I was very surprised at. And uh, the rest is, as it were, kind of history. Uh, I went through the whole process of having it published with copy editors, one or another. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, how, I mean, so after that, I guess you, did you stay on top or you kind of started to follow Coward's work from there on? That's how you uh, well, ended I, up suggesting the book to me? Because I was really surprised how you well, well, not suggested it. I mean, you suggested it to me because one, it's a, it's a re re very recent publication. And yeah, I was quite yeah, surprised yeah. about that. And I, but the work of Coward that I was familiar with, uh, you know, in the course of time had more to do with Coward's work on Jung and Eastern religion. Okay. So he had, he had published this work on Jung and Eastern religion, and that in some respects is still a very solid piece of work. And this grew out of Coward, who did his doctorate at uh, uh, McMaster's University. He came out of a Christian background in one thing or another, but uh, his area of specialization was really in Hinduism and Indian studies. And he studied under Murti there, who's a well-known uh, scholar and others, and had published in that field. And I got to know more about that, but I was particularly interested in his work on uh, uh, Jung and uh, Indian thought and he subsequently published another work. And then, of course, he edited a whole series of uh, works that grew out of conferences of one sort or another. He ended up at the University of Calgary and then went on to University of Victoria. I really did not stay in touch with him. Uh, I bumped into him, uh, you know, once or twice at conferences. We had a brief exchange and so on. But he was really the one that was instrumental in me getting, you know, this book published. You know, I don't know what I would have done, probably not sent it off or, you know, any number of other things with it, broken it up into a couple of articles. But uh, that first one on, on White and Young was accepted. That was my first publication. And I was actually a little surprised. But uh, and every, you know, every every. Uh, submission that I have made to journals and this and that and the next thing have been published. So <laughs> I managed to get a little bit of the fairy dust I said at the beginning. <laughs> and it's been helpful since then. And not extensive, but you know, I've done a number of things and yeah. along the lines of young I would just like to rewind back to what you raised before, which is that there is this ongoing interest in Jung. I think this is also in part because the publication of Jung's work is ongoing. There's, mm -hmm. you know, the, the so-called collected works of Jung in German and in English, and there's French editions, uh, what have you, 
But <clears throat> the Red Book of Jung, which was published in 2009, which was really this personal illuminated manuscript that constituted Jung's own breakthrough into the deeper regions of the unconscious, which surfaced all kinds of fascinating material and was known about but never saw the light of day other than a few items that were drawn from it by his secretary, ended up in a long protracted negotiation with his family that had, you know, authority over Jung's works to be published in 2009. And that mm. was something of a sensation and attracted people. Then New York Magazine published a piece on it. There was a big deal at the Rubin uh, Museum in New York where it was exhibited and on and on and on. And also, uh, many of Jung's seminars started to be published, and uh, a foundation was created called the Philemon Foundation. And there are several volumes that have now come out uh, from Jung's uh, uh, seminars that he gave, which have attracted a lot of attention and interest on the part of uh, not only people who are followers of Jung, uh, students of Jung, but uh, people who are interested in you know, this kind of material, much of which is really remarkably current, even for the fact that it was presented in seminars going back, you know, decades and decades and decades ago. Jung died in 1961. It's uh, really, uh, you know, surprising the extent to which he was, uh, you know, he anticipated so many shifts and changes. And I think that's one of the attractions. So just to say that it's uh, his, the publication of his works are ongoing. Ongoing. Still. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense too. Then, in terms of why there's so much excitement still in out in the culture as well. Um, but I mean, the other thing too that's interesting about Coward is that I mean, he studied with George Grant up at McManus, uh, uh, and I mean, like just reading some of the dates as well. I mean, McMaster's was '65. It was founded in terms of the religious studies department. McGill was 1970. Concordia was 1972. Ottawa was '65. Uh, Université de Montréal, uh, uh, Université du Québec à Montréal was in 69. So, I mean, even religious studies in Canada is a very new and fresh thing. Um, I, I'm curious to hear a bit, you know, maybe your thoughts about, you know, how George Grant and the impact he had as well, maybe on the field of religious studies in Canada and how you think maybe that contrasts or is different maybe from in the U.S. Uh, or if you have any yeah. thoughts on that specifically. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I recommended another work to you as well, which was on the history of religious studies in Canada. And I think identified there, and uh, part of my own experience as well, is that uh, many faculties of theology or faculties of divinity were the place in which you did pursue what were areas that later on constituted religious studies. So even though these were formally founded as separate entities from uh, confessionally oriented faculties of divinity and so on, it there was a, a transition into this stuff. It didn't just happen at the dates of the founding. Mm, exactly, was, yeah. uh, you know, there was a lot of this going on in one way, shape or form for some years. And not only in faculties of divinity, but also in East Asian studies, um, in South Asian studies, and even the Islamic Institute, people who were interested in Near Eastern studies. 
religious studies in a way tried to draw on these other fields in as far as they were focusing in areas that constituted religious studies and bring them into this form that were, you know, it's called departments of religion, departments of religious studies, there are various names here for it. So, so this was a process. And in Canada, I think it's very much the case that uh, this was an evolution. When I was at McGill, even though it was a faculty of religious studies, I remember Klaus Klaustermeyer, who was really one of the uh, great scholars of Hinduism internationally. He was teaching out in Manitoba at the time. And we fell into a conversation because I was interested in India and I actually had a friend who had studied with him and one thing or another. And he still thought McGill was more a faculty of theology than religious studies, even oh, though it was called a faculty of religious studies, simply because the majority of the uh, faculty at that time and the uh, different courses that were offered and who was running what, etc., were really all uh, part and parcel of the different theological colleges that coexisted with Goddard. And there was less of a kind of religious studies as a independent kind of entity. And I would say not only that, even Catwell Smith, who really represents one of the approaches to the whole area of religious studies, uh, was off at Harvard. And they created the Center for the Study of World Religion, which mm. McGill had a connection with. But the the kind of honeypot of history of religions was at the University of Chicago with Iliad and all of that group that was much more influenced by Eastern traditions of one sort or another, which was really the background of Iliad, who ended up becoming chair of the department out there. And that developed into a different kind of orientation and was less attached to or influenced by a theological perspective. And that became part of the debate, I think, that we see, not only in Canada, but in the States. Certainly in Canada, at the University of Toronto, is religious studies an independent kind of um, approach that's largely identifiable with the social sciences, rather than influenced by a theological perspective. And, you know, there's there's been a struggle around this kind of stuff. And I'd say much more in Canada than I saw, at least in my experience in the United States. And then you have these sort of maverick programs, uh, you know, such as uh, CIIS or, you know, any number of others. Goddard never had a religious studies program per se. Oh, yes, but, true, yeah. But they had people down there. Well, the first time I heard about Goddard was from Paul Reps. Paul Reps was this fascinating individual. He was an American military fellow who uh, served out in Asia and became drawn to Buddhism, Zen Buddhism in particular, and wrote a very now classic book called Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. I met him at Concordia University where he was giving a lecture and I was introduced to him through a friend of mine who had an interest in Buddhism. And I had said, oh, well, where have you been? He said, I've been to a place called Goddard College. <laughs> and so that was the first time, frankly, I had heard but about you've Goddard You've heard College. it. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. But when I was hired at Goddard in the library, you had all of this material 
which was the older material connected to Indian philosophy, Buddhism, and all kinds. Of, it's, it's clear that there were people who had an interest in this stuff, and that was reflected in the stacks of the library, even if they didn't formally have a religious studies program, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and I mean, John Dewey as well, in terms of his, well, obviously as a, you know, one of the founders, I guess you could say, of pragmatism, along right. with William yeah. James, Uh I mean, there's a deep influence of kind of uh, idealism or Hegelianism in their work as well in terms of their thinking, which is pretty interesting as well. And, you know, how in Canada we also also have our, so, our own sort of kind of Canadian idealism tradition, which is slightly different than down in the United States and stuff like that. And that's something that I've been thinking about quite a bit, I guess, uh, you know, throughout all the conversations that I've been having and stuff like that and trying to figure out, I mean, it's even a question that I posed to, um, uh, to Sean is that, uh, Sean Kelly specifically, you know, whether, you know, Charles Taylor and his work in terms of, uh, on Hegel at the time, if it had any particular impact on him and stuff like that. Um, I was wondering if, if Charles Taylor at all maybe had an impact on you as well, in terms of some of your thinking, since you've been bouncing around the religious studies, George Grant being one, Cantwell Smith being another one, I mean, Taylor kind of, is around the superficial kind of, you know, field as well, I guess you could say, along with philosophy of religion. Right. I think more recently, some of his work is quite, he did the, a piece on William James and, you know, other things on secularism and religion. I think the work that I took an interest in was sources of the self. I mm. was interested in the emergence of what constituted this sense of identity within Western culture. And I was interested in that in relation to sort of modern psychology, even though Taylor's construction around this stuff grew out of, you know, some of the intellectual traditions, Montesquieu and a whole series of others in, in Europe at the time. And and the whole question, which, you know, the postmodernists get into is whether, you know, identity is constructed, whether rather than a kind of a given. And what this had to do with Jung's notion of the self, which is really a central piece of Jung's own psychology. So that's kind of the connection. I, you know, I, I read his Hegel, especially the introduction, which I thought was interesting in terms of laying out the kind of climate, intellectual climate and atmosphere. Um, but uh, I think Sean went off and did that work on Hegel, which was so interesting because among Jungians, there was this sense that uh, Hegel was persona non grata. I remember, uh -huh. <laughs> I remember Mary Louise von Franz, who was one of the closest disciples of Jung, herself orig originally... Uh, came out of, uh, you know, a, a background in classical studies and classical languages and so on. At any rate, she became probably the later in Jung's life, his number one assistant. Anyway, she gave a lecture at uh, Loyola campus and a question was posed to her about Hegel because there seemed to be this correlation in some ways that people were sort of interested in. And she answered by saying, Jung loathed Hegel. And that was kind of, <laughs> that shut the conversation down. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and Jung said that Hegel was a um, psychologue malgré lui. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so uh, 
you know, Sean managed to put together the connections, which I found very interesting, and his mentor, John Durley, who was yeah. at Carlton, uh, who was fascinated and actually very much influenced Sean by um, Sean's connecting the two together, which I think is, you know, part of the original work he's done. Because you know, otherwise, most unions simply keep them apart. You don't want to violate <laughs> <laughs> the received tradition of where Hegel should be located. <laughs> Got it. Okay. <laughs> um, I guess the other thing, too, is, I mean, because he obviously turned towards transversal psychology in a big way uh, and yeah. eventually got into Ken Wilber. Uh, and obviously, I mean, from the, the previous conversation we had, I mean, you're obviously very well conversant with Ken Wilbur and his, his body of work and stuff like that. Um, I'd be curious to hear a bit of your thoughts in terms of, you know, the, the current state of transpersonal psychology, uh, what the integral movement is and its impact, I guess, on education more broadly, because it has a big impact, uh, or has had a big impact, you know, on a lot of people in terms of their educational philosophy. I mean, Goddard has his own philosophical uh, philosophy of education, but in a certain way, I mean, having read your work in terms of conscious studies, I mean, it is integral uh, in its overall orientation, very much like what people are talking about up at CIIS in terms of an integral education. So I'd be curious to hear a bit of your thoughts on that and, you know, where you think that that's all going a bit. Well, I think that Wilbur had this meteoric rise, you know, and especially, you know, in his early work, the spectrum of consciousness, which offered a different perspective. And then his, you know, very prolific works that he put out one after the other and was thought to be and recognized as, and I think legitimately so, probably the most important thinker coming into this whole field of transpersonal psychology, which grew out of, as you know, Maslow and a whole series of other things, but he crystallized this. And as is the case in the United States, you know, becoming a celebrity and a star is important. And Wilbur, you know, managed to provide the, you know, productions that legitimize this. But I think what happened and has happened is that uh, this is kind of congealed in a way into a more measured view of Wilbur. So he's no longer perceived as the, um, you know, kind of paragon of bringing all of these pieces together in his sort of elaborate constructed sort of analysis and understanding. And then went off into this whole integral thing, which sort of removed him from having an impact, I think, especially in the academic field. Uh, and then we had critiques that started to emerge as well. I think one of the most important being uh, Jorge Ferrer's work on revisioning transpersonal theory. Mm -hmm. But Sean himself co-edited a work which examined Wilbur and kind of with the back and forth in terms of you know, some of the critiques and some of the responses and some of, you know, and this, this I don't think is unusual when an individual of talent and uh, considerable um, achievement needs to be assessed and uh, where they're kind of finally going to get located in this whole process. But that whole integral movement sort of developed into something of its own. And he had followers and followers have loyalties. And you get this kind of thing that has sort of emerged <clears throat> at Goddard. 
our own perspective is really not all that influenced by, you know, a Wilbur. There may be certain similarities in terms of the notion of integral and so on, which I think is uh, sort of um, a, a term that uh, <clears throat> uh, has a reality outside of Wilbur's, you know, conception about this. And uh, you see this in Jorge Ferrer's work, too, where he uses this term integral, integral education, what have you. But I think the critique has sort of settled down uh, Wilbur into being one of a number of individuals who then has gone off on his own and, you know, developed a, a kind of a following. <clears throat> I've had students who have done masters on Wilbur. And my understanding at one time, I think Wilbur taught at Goddard for, I think, a semester or something way back when. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you had mentioned but, that in uh, our conversation as well. Yeah. Yeah. But... Uh, you know, to me, I think Stanislav Grof is probably the individual who will have a lasting kind of importance in terms of bringing uh, that rich background that he has in psychiatry and uh, psychoactive studies. And uh, I think the CIIS people tend to be more uh, identified with, or at least. Um, sympathetic to kind of the Groff's approach, Richard Tarnas and other people along those lines. So Wilbur's to some degree seems to have sort of moved himself out of that sort of mainstream, even though he has recognition and, you know, some of the others, Walsh and uh, so on, who still value and did when in early Wilbur, I guess. So <clears throat> that's kind of my rough, sort of take on yeah you know because well, i mean like exactly like you said though i mean because the integral motif is i mean obviously wilbur was deeply inspired by sri Aurobindo, so he was drawing on the east as well in terms of uh that whole sort of lineage and tradition that was very much as or has influenced ciis oh yeah um sure. but i mean like you said though there are some western uh roots to this as well like gene gepser is one in terms of the, obviously that's in, impacted wilbur quite a bit and I mean, because I actually have a conversation, I'm, I'm going to be meeting up with one of my old professors, Mark Lalonde, and when I tried to talk to him about Ken Wilbur, I mean, he thought I was talking to him about Jacques Maritain and Jacques Maritain's uh, integral <laughs> humanism. Right. Um, and I'm still kind of reeling from that and obviously having read his work now and stuff like that, and I'm always wondering why uh, some of these other sort of figures that we're thinking integrally if we can say it like that, I mean, even somebody like Young, right? I mean, Jean Gepser mm -hmm. and I mean, somebody like Jacques Maritain. Um, and, you know, and my conversations with Marc Lalonde in terms of obviously, because he was a, a direct student of Charles Davis and Charles Davis was, I mean, deeply inspired by all these sort of schools and philosophies of thought. Uh, so, I mean, I'm wondering maybe if there's like a Canadian version of this somehow versus an American version of this in terms of thinking along these lines, uh, you know, through throughout the years. I mean, because Coward talks about, you know, like, I mean, the, the 50 plus years of religious studies in Canada is, is solidified almost into a form of civil religion almost or a culture, you know, around these institutions and stuff like that. And I'm wondering maybe you know, if, if, if this is something maybe that's coming on the horizon, then I'd be curious to hear maybe your, just a few of your thoughts on that as well. 
you know, I don't know that I have all that much to say about it because in some respects, my own, you know, experience in education has been tied to not only Goddard, but what has been going on in the U.S. The majority of my students were American students. There were mm. some before 9-11 that came from India and other places. I did have a few Canadian students. There are some Canadian faculty there. But, uh, you know, my experience really was more in the American scene. And I can't say all that much around what's going on in Canada other than some of the brief comments I've made and certainly around what you're asking. Um, and I'd also say that the center of gravity of discussions and influences seems to be so much more driven by what occurs down in the U.S. in yeah. such you know, in such, um, you know, uh, groups such as the American Academy of Religion. I went to a conference, for example, there was a conference in Montreal going back I don't know, a decade or so. And people came from all over and it was wonderful. And they went to the conference center and so on. And then I was at one in uh, San Francisco and I was part of a panel because I wrote an essay on Ramdas, and I initially presented it there and then it was later published. But, um, it was, you know, two, three times the size. This was, you know, driven by the interest that surfaced among, you know, the community of, um, you know, educators and students and what have you. And uh, I think that's where you can decipher certain developments that seem to have kind of or do sweep over, you know, what goes on in Canada. And I would say that the restrictions and limitations due to funding and certain administrative decisions around what constitutes religious studies, whereby you see in so many different departments, I can tell you University of Ottawa got absorbed with other departments. They no longer have that kind of independent uh, sort of status as a religious studies department. They're kind of coexistent with, partnered with, and subsumed into other departments. Uh, Carleton was the same thing. Even the religious studies at um, McGill underwent, you know, a shift and a change. And uh, the heyday of religious studies, it uh, seems to me, was in a, an earlier period of time. And that was the case in the United States, too, where you saw these sort of creative centers such as University of Chicago and places like that, or even the Center for the Study of World Religion at Harvard. And uh, I don't know whether there's going to be a rebirth here or, or not, but uh, there seems to be something of a lull. And then the other side of this, too, is that some of the interesting developments that uh, would constitute, you know, what we could generally expand into thinking about the religious or spiritual take place outside of religious studies department. One of the other conferences that I'm interested in and have been to is the um, Towards the Science of Consciousness conference uh, held biannually at the University of Arizona, but there are other centers too and smaller conferences of one sort or another. And here there are people drawn from many different disciplines, the neurosciences, uh, philosophy, uh, some from religious studies, etc. And it's, uh, it's very rich, it's very interdisciplinary, 
and it is so much broader and so much more um, unconstrained by, you know, certain conventions and certain perspectives. So um, I was at a conference, actually Goddard sponsored, uh, was one of the sponsors in 2008 in New Delhi, and there were 400 people there from all over the world mm. with all kinds of backgrounds, and it was on psychology and spirituality. And it was really fascinating, and I think that that's also part of a certain trend that people uh, are not so identified with particular religious traditions or orientations in that kind of theological, etc. sense. Yeah, and that uh, that shifts things. Whether that's going to have an impact on religious studies, I don't know. In places like CIIS or even at Goddard. We bring things in that are part and parcel of this richness as best as we could and encourage students to work on this stuff. And uh, yeah, I was talking to a former student yesterday who lives in Florida and he's applied to do a doctorate at CIIS and he was actually accepted. And so we had a conversation about what he was going to do. And he's broadly interested in aesthetics, Japanese martial arts, pottery, and uh, Buddhism, you know, so mm. there's a whole kind of richness there bringing in other elements that could perhaps not live so easily together in a department of religious studies or a faculty of religious studies or something along those lines. You know? Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, there's a few interesting cognitive scientists as well in Canada. I mean, Evan Thompson and uh, is one out in uh, uh, out in BC that's had a big impact on me as well. He's very interesting, mm -hmm. and I mean, uh, I mean, they're they're straddling all kinds of of uh, of these questions from a very interdisciplinary type framework. Right. I mean, cognitive science today is, I mean, it's it is so interdisciplinary. So it's going to be very interesting to go and see how that comes about. Um, yeah. So I mean, there's just so much exciting stuff that's out there, and I mean, the conversation that I had with Sean McGrath as well. I'm super excited to what he's doing along with Garth Green up at the um, uh, the Faculty of Religious Studies, since they're thinking of, you know, try to create a society essentially around the philosophy of religion in Canada. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that, you know, that'll create a bit of a gravitational pull for people mm -hmm. to to start to have these types of questions, uh, but also to to remember this history. Um, that's really something that's come to get me after the last little while. I mean, reading... Uh, Coward's work is this that you know there's just this rich history. <laughs> yeah. But if you want uh, if you want this history to have a future life, you yeah. have to have opportunities for people. You know, just to digress for a second, I was talking to Bob Stevenson, it was the kind of background, it's Hinduism at uh McGill and uh, Charles Adams and I was sitting down, I was uh, with them and they were talking about future positions and they were working out some stuff for the American Academy of Religion. And Adams and I were walking across the campus. He was heading to the Islamic Institute, which his office was actually in the Leacock building. And he said, you know, Francis, there's going to be all kinds of jobs in this and that and the next thing. Oh, oh well, that's, you know, great. It's something to look forward to. Well, there weren't all kinds of jobs. There yeah. were, I applied for many, many, many jobs and did not get any. And mm. I can say that, you know, we, I, you know, had courses here and there, one thing or another. And I think that was the experience of a number of us. 
And if you're going to draw people into religious studies as a discipline, an area, then they have to have a means by which to support and sustain themselves. And in, yeah. you know, in many respects, that also means taking up a position in the academy somewhere. But mm -hmm. if there are no jobs and no this, no that, then what do you do? One of the reasons I would have been very happy to have taught up here yeah. in Canada and so on, and there were no opportunities. Not like I had at Goddard, who handed me, you know, a cap lunch. Well, and they just wanted me to develop this, uh, you know, consciousness studies concentration. Here it is; it's yours. How are you going to put it together? And that's, you know, yeah. what my my work ended up being. And I had no such opportunity up here. Well, I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, two of my favorite scholars right now from Canada is uh, uh, Galen Watts and uh, Matt McManus. And I mean, they're recent graduates from, uh, I think, Carleton and York. Well, Matt is from York. And I mean, he's published seven books since graduating, and he can't get a job in Canada. I mean, and his work is amazing. It's one of the most inspiring works I've ever seen. I mean, I recently just had him on my podcast, and, you know, it breaks my it really breaks my heart to go out and see that, you know, that we have this homegrown talent uh, that our education system is going out and producing. And then all of a sudden, I mean, the, they can't go out and find the work that they, they need to go out and support themselves to go out and start their, not only their yeah. careers, but start to have a family. And yeah. then, you know, they they get drawn into the United States. I mean, Galen's actually abroad in, uh, in Europe and uh, Matt just landed a job up at the university of Michigan yeah. And I just think it's a real shame that we're just not doing a very good job to, to go yeah. out and retain our talent and, uh, uh, yeah. you know, keep some of this alive. But, um, yeah, I mean, again, I just want to thank you not only for your time, but I mean, all the suggestions in terms of readings that you've given me, I mean, I've been reeling <laughs> and enjoying them tremendously. Uh, and it's, you know, it's come to inform a lot of the conversations that I'm having and stuff like that around the podcast. And, and, uh, I hope to, to keep on doing as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I would love to, to circle back around again to I mean, actually dive in a bit deeper in terms of your work on young, uh, sure. especially since of the conversations I had, uh, with Sean McGrath and, uh, his friend out in Europe around the, uh, the secular Christ series that they're doing that they talk a lot about young. I would love to, 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 to get your perspective on that eventually as well. And, and yeah. uh, either have tea or coffee again. It's been a real yeah, well, pleasure yeah. chatting with you. Yeah. Well, let's do that. Cause it's nice just to get together too and sit down and, you know, and I'm now that I'm retired, I have, uh, you know, more time and it, it keeps me stimulated as well. But, Otherwise, I might start forgetting. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't seem to have lost lost a beat <laughs> at all. So, uh, yeah. So, so to be continued. And uh, again, thank you for your time.